Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good? I'm doing well. Let me adjust here. Hang on. Hello, Garden Church. My name is John. I am the uh, community life pastor here. It is so good to be with you this morning. We are in a series that Darren kicked off last week, coming back from sabbatical, called Bring Life. And last week, uh, Darren talked about bringing life through compassion. And this morning, I'm going to paint a picture of the ways that we bring life through connection, through relationship, meaningful relationship with one another, that we were built for connection, not for isolation. But first, um, a little about myself. For those that don't know me, um, it is an incredible privilege and honor to be here, to be on this stage. I don't take it lightly. If you would have told me a year ago that I'd be up here preaching, talking with you, I would not have believed you. Um, And uh, my wife and I, a bit about ourselves, my wife and I, Lydia, um, we've been married for eight years, and we um, first got married. We were living in Long Beach. We moved to Newport Beach, 
And we had an amazing setup there. It doesn't sound that amazing when I first talk about it because we were living under my in-laws, which sometimes isn't ideal. But we were on the beach living rent-free. We didn't pay any rent there. Uh, steps from the water. It was, it was beautiful. We were just, I mean, two newlyweds, just like, how could life get any better? We were going to a church, Rock Harbor, where this church was planted from. And uh, uh, one day, one of the pastors there said, if Rock Harbor is getting in the way of your God-sized dreams, then you need to leave. And he called us out. A lot of people got called out in a way because um, um, of things that were stirring in people that really didn't know how to, how to address in a, in a church the size of Rock Harbor, of just, just that kind of mentality. And so um, my wife and I, I had a dream of starting a community garden. And this community garden would be a place that would bring peace in the midst of chaos, that it would turn something ugly and abandoned lot into something beautiful, where people could experience life that was truly life, that it was a neutral zone that people could share relationship with and get to know one another. And I really wanted someone to give us a free piece of land, and I wanted them to be able to uh, have us do whatever we wanted with it. And I guess that was a God-sized dream. It was a God-sized dream. And I didn't know how to do that, where I was at. And the Long Beach Project was just starting. And that was the name of the, of the garden before it became the garden, Long Beach Project, the church plant from Rock Harbor. And so we joined um, one of the nights, one of the first nights that, we, um, that the Long Beach Project was meeting. And we, we come there, we're in this basement, it's just sweaty and small. And um, I remember driving away and my wife and I were just like, man, that was messy. That was clumsy. That was unpolished. But God was there. Jesus was at the center of it. And we drove away saying, this is our church. This is our home. And so we dove head first. And I remember meeting with Darren those first few days. And I was like, hey, I have this dream for starting this community garden. He's like, yeah, just go for it. Do it. I think he was just really just wanting anyone to come along. He's like, yeah, do whatever you want. Um, please, you're going to stay, right? You're going to stay? And, um, so, and uh, so, again, we, um, we jumped, we, we dove in. And we realized, though, that we needed to move. We needed to leave the Newport Beach life. We needed to leave the rent-free life. We needed to leave my mother-in-law doing our laundry. We needed to leave the chicken and rice casserole that she would leave in the fridge. <laughs> and um, we needed to move to Long Beach and start paying rent. Can you believe it? And um, because we knew that um, God was in it, we needed to move here. We needed to invest our life in this city. And um, the community garden that my wife and I helped start really became... Um, a part of the garden's early story is where the garden name partly came from. So we got to be part of this at such an early age. And this church really, um, you know, over the last eight years since us being here, a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't changed. This church has always been and still is um, a place that has a vision for a city, not a church, not a building. And um, I was a volunteer here. I was a ministry leader here with the community garden. My wife and I were on the elder team. And I was, up until a year ago, the um, emergency manager at California State University, Long Beach. Um, I was the guy they called if it hit the fan. And I had a plan for the earthquake, I had a plan for the tsunami, I had a plan for um, everything. Um, asteroids, meteors, plane crashes, everything. I, was, I had a plan and a solution for everything of how to get the university back to working order. And this kind of calling in my life came at a time where I, was, I really didn't want to end there. I wanted to, I wanted to reach the nations. I wanted to bring disaster relief to the nations, and I th still think that's in the future. But a year ago, a calling came on my life that I actually realized was with me since I accepted Christ, and that's for another sermon, but um, that I was 
called to be a pastor. And I look back, and it was the first time in my life that, I don't know if you're familiar with kind of uh, identifying with this, but I often feel that I'm always ahead of God, that I look back and like, oh, God's back there, I need to back up. And I kind of always get ahead of what God is doing. And this was the first time in my life where I actually saw him ahead of me. And he was, he was like, John, come, I've been preparing this for you this entire time. Look back on all the things that have lined up in your life and, and trust me in this. And so this last year coming on staff here has been such an incredible journey. It has probably been the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful years of my life, apart from the first year of being married to my wife. And, um, uh, and so, um, yeah, we have a four-year-old daughter, Charlotte. You might have seen her. She kind of comes on stage with me. Uh, my wife is pregnant. We're pregnant with our second daughter. She's 22 weeks along. And um, I just want to say I cherish you, Garden Family. You um, mean so much to me and my wife. Um, if you're new, you found an amazing community. You are blessed. <laughs> and if you've been with us a while, I just want to thank you for making the garden, this community, what it is. Um, we believe that each of you holds a unique DNA that changes the garden for the better, that we need you. We, this is not a staff run, you, we tell you what to do in a way. It's you get to come along and realize your God-sized dreams here, and we get to call and raise you up and release you in that. So thank you, Garden. Um, my wife, Lydia, my daughter, Charlotte, and my daughter coming, I'm just so excited that they get to be raised in, in this church where um, my wife and I are falling more in love with Jesus being involved um, on staff, that my daughter and my new daughter are going to be more in love with Jesus. That's my hope, and that's the reality that I see happening here. So before I jump into the sermon, let me... Um, let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us, that you empower us, that you encourage us. I pray now, Father, that you um, would release yourself here, that you would um, be the center here, Jesus. We pray for your, um, your presence here. May this be marked by your presence. Whatever we're coming in with, this week of celebration, this week of suffering, this week of doubt, this week of questions, this week of I barely even got here, we thank you that you are present here. We thank you that we can remind each other of that. We love you, praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So at our core, we are built for connection. This is what every human being is longing for. We are longing for deep, authentic, meaningful relationships. And um, since Adam and Eve in Genesis, we see so many stories in the Bible that point towards us wanting to be known and wanting to know. But for some reason... There's a human condition in us that pushes back, that is a hole that we find in ourselves that never seems fulfilled, that we try so much to be known, and in so we kind of open ourselves up to being hurt, and then we get hurt, and we're like done, right? Um, we, uh, we crave intimacy. We see it in our lives. We see it in our social lives. We see it in our, our pseudo-social lives, and the reality is we live in a hyper-socially connected world that manufactures intimacy. Yet we are more socially isolated and unknown to those around us than ever before. And I think this is a reality that we have to deal with, that we want to create in us a facade of who we want to be known as. And it's almost like I'm going to be fake until I feel safe, and then I'll let my true self be known. And I think the church does a disservice to itself when it operates in that mentality, because that's not the reality. We're not all perfect. I'm not perfect. And I think um, 
when we talk about that as well, we're, we're identifying this craving, this desire in us to not be lonely, to be known, to be connected. We want to be known for who we really are because if someone loves us for the fake us, there's something inside of us that says, oh gosh, if only they knew who I really was. If only I could have that same kind of love with who I really was. And that's a reality that we can pursue. So we're going to talk about this morning. We realized too, there's a recent study that said 40% of the Western world would identify themselves as lonely. And that's tragic. That is so sad. 40% of you in this room would identify yourselves as being lonely. And unfortunately, many of us come from families who never knew how to operate in a healthy mindset of connection, of intimacy. Broken homes, our rushed lifestyles, societal expectations, things we've placed on family that really shouldn't have been placed there. You were put in situations as either a child or, or as an adult now where you just weren't ready for. And I think most importantly, um, this is something that even my wife and I struggle with. Um, we have failed to, um, we, ne- we never, either never learned it or we failed to carry on the tradition of one of the most connected places that we have in existence. And it's the dinner table around a common meal, a common dinner table around a meal. Family dinners, a place that exists as almost a sanctuary of being known and accepted as you are. And that's why communion is so important. These places, these spheres are missing in our lives because we just have failed to carry them on. And so when we talk about connection, what we're really talking about is family. That there is a longing in us and a need to have and to redeem family. And we all have experiences with family. We have them both inside what we would typically call a family, and we have them outside of a family. Um, There's different definitions that we carry with family, and there's a lot of hurt that we have when we talk about that. And there's a lot of things that we celebrate in that. Um, A lot of us have some really healthy family environments, and and it's amazing. Um, But others of us, we've been let down. We've put too much expectation on. And ones that have failed us and built in us a reaction that once we're hurt, we're done. Kind of this one and done and never again. And um, my wife and I deal with this in our marriage. And uh, sometimes, sometimes we fight. (laughs) And um, we fight a lot, actually. Um, And we get in these arguments, and we start kind of dealing with whatever we're fighting about. And um, you ever notice, like, the, like the argument never is really about what it is about. It's always about how you argue. It's like the argument then becomes how we're arguing. Oh, it's so frustrating. Um, and it's like we need to, like, get this, like, place where it's like, well, can we just argue right so we can get here? But oftentimes we'll argue, and we'll try to get to the solution or something or a topic or a, something that is bugging her or bugging me or whatever. And oftentimes... Um, my wife, and she's allowed me to say this because this is the one fault of hers where I have many faults. Um, but she will sometimes, in the middle of an argument, just say, well, fine, I'll just never talk about that again. I just won't bring it up ever again. I'll just, we'll just pretend it doesn't exist and we'll just walk this line around this thing and we'll just never talk about this because if we talk about it, then we have to deal with this situation. And I think even my wife, she, she, she would say, like, yeah, that's not healthy, but there's something about either past hurts or past expectations family that didn't operate the way it was supposed to, that kind of draws these lines around, well, let's just compartmentalize these things off because that's a space that I don't want to go with anymore. And um, yeah, we revert back to these, but we know that's not the way it should be. My wife knows that's not the way it should be. So we pursue this. We recognize the need to pursue family 
in connection despite its difficulty. So today I want to suggest the true definition of family and connection is found and learned in the local church. How is, so then how was connection, how were rituals, how were disciplines that kept the early church grounded, how were these things expressed in the family, in the life of the church? So if you have your Bible, I want to take a look at Acts 2. Um, if you don't have your Bible, that's fine. The words will be on the screen. Um, don't worry, I won't tell Darren if you use your phone. Um, you can use your phone, it's fine. Um, there are Bibles here at each of the, the, the stands here. The words will be on the screen. But we're going to take a look at Acts 2. We're going to read it. I'm going to give us some context about where this is coming from and how um, this is being applied to, that, uh, to those that were there. And then we're going to um, take a, read it again in that context. So Acts 2, 42 starts with this. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so um, Acts, it was written by a guy named Luke. Um, same Luke as the Gospel of Luke. It's um, chapter two of, uh, of it. It's, it's Netflix season two of what Luke was saying. And can I just say, Netflix season two of Stranger Things. I cannot wait <laughs> for Stranger Things season two. I want to adopt Dustin and just have him read me books all day. That little toothless kid, he is adorable. Um, so uh, Netflix. Um, so Luke, Luke is the life and the mission of Jesus. Acts is the life and the mission of Jesus through the church. So there's a distinction there between what Luke is writing for the gospel of Luke and Acts. So this is now, this is what Jesus did in the life of Jesus. Now this is what the church gets to do. And so Acts begins um, in, in Acts 1 with Jesus leaving. As he said he was leaving, he's been resurrected, he's leaving, he's going. He says, I'm gonna, don't worry, um, I'm sending another who is greater than I. And um, Acts 2 is Pentecost. The early church is filled with the Spirit. Over 3,000 are baptized. Um, and then we look at Acts 2.42, we have the first picture, the first glimpse in history of what the church was doing. What was the church doing once it was on mission? What do we see? So we read that again through this lens. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we notice what they're talking about. They're not talking about the pastor, they're not talking about the worship leader, they're not talking about the ministries, they're not talking about the buildings, they're not talking about um, anything but what they're doing. They don't even have a Bible yet. They don't even have Bibles yet. The New Testament wasn't written yet. They just have each other. And, and who are the each others? Who's actually there? 
And this is fascinating. The Holy Spirit has come. The believers are there. They're filled. They start speaking in tongues. Um, it says that uh, they were staying in Jerusalem. You don't have to go there. It's not gonna be on the screen, but you can go there if you want. It's 2-5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So Pentecost has come. You have, um, you have all of these people speaking uh, languages that they shouldn't know. They think that they're drunk. Um, and this is who's actually there. Um, they, they say, aren't the, all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? You have uh, per, Perthians, Medes, Elamites, uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, uh, Phryg- Phrygia, Sorry, my seminary was on the streets of Long Beach. I don't know how to pronounce these names. Um, and Pamphylia and parts of Libya near Serene uh, and Cretans and Arabs, Cretans and Arabs. And you look at this and you see, and then it says, um, so they're confused and Peter's like, okay, we got to like do something here because this is an opportunity. So Peter stands up, he um, raised his voice and he addressed the crowds and he starts, he, he proclaims them the gospel, gospel of Christ. And then at the end of, of um, Towards the end of, of 2, of 41, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. And then we have, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So imagine a church, imagine a church that um, is, is made up of so many different kinds of people. Imagine a church of different languages, different races, whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, Wealthy, poor, single, married, divorced. So many differences. Yet it says that they have everything in common and no need among them. The early church was defined by family. It was experienced as family. It was grounded in Jesus through fellowship, meals, prayer, no need among them, and marked by this, even in the reality of so much that made them different. They had all things in common. I love what Henry Nouwen says. He says that we are unified by our common weaknesses, our common failures, our common disappointments, and our common inconsistencies. Something to notice about the early church in this text. They weren't passive observers. They weren't spectators. They weren't waiting for someone to tell them to go. They were full participants in the life of the church, and they became a different, a new kind of family. A family is deep, authentic, meaningful relationships. It's on mission together. It's you are needed. It's you have a part to play, even if that part is solely to receive this season. And why? Why did the family need to operate this way? Because the church needed to be this kind of family or the message of Jesus wouldn't have survived. This kind of family survives harsh persecution. It survives death. It survives loss. This family transcends cross-cultural boundaries. This family reached the nations. And how? Because this family had deep, authentic, meaningful relationships. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. The church is not an institution. It is a people. We need each other in times of suffering and in times of great celebration. Thanks, Corey. <laughs> I will never forget what was supposed to be a routine checkup for my daughter turn into one of the most difficult times of our lives. 
We were supposed to be there for 15 minutes to have an ultrasound to check up on um, what, was, what was happening with the pregnancy. Ended up being a three-hour appointment where um, we heard the news that no parent should ever hear. I'm so sorry, but there's something seriously wrong with your daughter's heart. And the doctor told us that um, most parents, most people decide to end the pregnancy at this time. And we um, stopped her in her tracks and kicked her out of the room. And we just cried in each other's arms. We had no idea what to do. Um, she was diagnosed with uh, transposition of the great arteries. Her pulmonary and her aorta were switched. So oxygenated blood would come into her lungs, um, back to her heart and back to her lungs. So no oxygenated, no oxygenated um, blood would reach her body. She also had a couple, a couple holes in her heart. And uh, it also could mean uh, a, a myriad of different chromosomal issues. Uh, they, they said it could be Down syndrome. It could be so many things. And um, we, we were devastated. <laughs> I mean, devastated doesn't even put it into context. There was just this void in us that we had no idea how to deal with. Um, I would say that probably one of the first emotions was just anger at God, the why. And our, that day is still a bit of a blur, but I um, remember pulling out of the parking lot. and it's, <laughs> I remember um, I, I left work early to go to the appointment, so we drove separate. <laughs> and I remember having to leave my wife. We were in two separate cars, and I remember just making eye contact with her as we were like, navigating the parking lot on the way out and just no idea what to do. I'm a guy that always knows what to do. I'm a guy that always has a plan. And um, this is a quick story. Um, my wife and I scrapped every penny together uh, to go on a honeymoon to Greece. We didn't spend much on the wedding so that we could go on an amazing honeymoon. And um, we were still penny pinching the whole way. But uh, we get to Greece, we get to Santorini, and we needed to rent a car and um, I uh, was looking at the car prices, and the automatic was like $100 more than the stick shift. And, but, um, so I was like, oh, I'll get the stick shift. And my wife was like, you know how to drive a stick shift? And I was like, of course I know how to drive a stick shift. I'm a guy. Every guy knows how to drive a stick shift. <laughs> I'm literally, I'm a husband for two days. And I'm like, this is my moment to prove myself as a husband, as a, my first manly moment as a married man. And so I went with the, the, the stick shift, and we, <laughs> we pull out of the parking lot, and like, and my wife is like, are you sure you know how to drive a stick shift? Yeah, yeah, I know how to drive a stick shift. This car, this is a loose clutch. It's a rental. It's probably just burned clutch. I've probably driven a stick shift for like 10 minutes before this. I just never had driven one. And I knew kind of how the mechanics worked, but I was determined in my mind. I wasn't like, oh gosh, I have no idea what to do. I was not, I will figure this out. I will, I know what to do. I have an answer for this. And literally we're like stalling at intersections um, we're lost, but you know, and, and people are like honking at us and probably cussing at us in, in different languages that we don't understand. So it's like, oh, thanks, sorry, so sorry. And I remember going up a hill and like worst case scenario, I'm like steep hill and like had to stop. I'm like, oh my gosh, here we go. And like, I could barely get into first and we're like rolling into oncoming traffic. It was horrible, but I figured it out. I got it and we survived. We're still here and I figured it out. I always knew what to do. But here, now with my daughter, I had no idea. This was never a place that I had ever found myself in before. I called my family. 
I called my, my friends. I called Darren. I called Zach. I called Chad. I called men that I was connected to, people in my life that I knew would be there for us. But even their words fell short. I think some of you are in this situation right now. Maybe you've, you've been in a situation. You know what I'm talking about. It's just this lostness. It's this void. Maybe you've suffered immense grief. Maybe it's moments where you have realized that you just don't have any answer. And you're just like, why me? How did this happen? This happens to other people. This doesn't happen to me. Every single night, we tried to pray. <laughs> we didn't know how to pray. We didn't know the words to say. Um, we spent countless hours. We became experts at all things heart conditions. We Googled when you shouldn't Google. You shouldn't Google in these situations. Um, but we became experts. We argued with doctors. We got second, third, fourth opinions. Um, it was looking pretty grim for um, just her survival. There were so many questions until we actually got to see her heart out when she was born. There was just so many looming questions, visit after visit, opinion after opinion. We're going to do this. Actually, we're going to do this. It was just a moment in our life where it's just you're making these massive decisions and we were just like, where is God in all of this? And so my wife delivered Charlotte. Um, we got to hold her for about 30 seconds before they took her away to ICU. Um, and she was in surgery less than 24 hours after being born. She was transferred to CHLA across the street from the hospital we gave birth to. So I'm running back and forth between my wife, who has just given birth and has had to give away her child, and then running back to my daughter, who's fighting for her life. And it was we weren't eating. We weren't sleeping. Um, we were broken. We were absolutely broken. And it was chaos. It was a recipe for disaster. And I think... Um, it was a recipe for our, it was a recipe for disaster for our marriage, for our souls, and and it was actually winning. That battle was being won over over us. It was tearing us apart. But family stepped in. When we didn't know how to pray, when we didn't know what to do, we were surrounded by those that reminded us, that suffered with us, that celebrated every milestone. We were staying at the Ronald McDonald House, and um, I remember there's, there's a cafeteria area that um, our friends threw a birthday party for Charlotte when she was seven days old because she was only given seven days to, to live. And we celebrated that moment with our family. And it reminded us when we didn't want to, um, we didn't know what to do. But mostly I remember, and it's, it's strange because even this memory for her is really is distant. She doesn't really remember this, but um, Alex, Darren's wife, sent us um, an email. She was with us and everything, but she sent us an email one day, and she said this. Oh, actually, no, before I put that up. Um, yeah, Charlotte's chest was scheduled to be closed that day. It was a risky procedure. They had to keep her chest open um, after the surgery so to, to help with swelling and in case they had to go back in. Um, so we're literally, you can see just her heart beating it, just under this, this small sheet of plastic, and it was just like how is this even happening? And um, we get this email. Just wanted to remind you that even when you're too tired to pray, just be still. For even in the silence, God will hear every word in your heart. And she sent us all these scriptures. I'll just kind of quickly go through them. Romans 8, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Go to the next one. Psalm 55, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. 
Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Next one. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And she said, we love you guys and we are praying for your strength today. I know God is with you, baby girl, and she will pull through this. Just know you are never alone and neither is she. I read those verses every day and it reminded us of who God is. We needed her to remind us in the midst of suffering, just like the early church needed to be reminded through each other in the midst of theirs. They wouldn't have survived. Their church would not have survived. We would not have survived without it. We need those around us when we don't know ourselves. We need the church, not the institution, but the people. Charlotte is obviously with us today. Um, the surgery was success successful. Um, future is still looking great. Um, you know, every year we have to get a checkup and just make sure, but everything looks amazing. Um, she is such a light to everyone that meets her. Uh, she's a gift to us, and we really wouldn't have her any other way. Um, but the truth is, life is beautiful, and life is hard. Life is easy, and life is ugly. We need people to celebrate and enjoy the beautiful moments. And we need to cry out and pray for others in their ugly moments. But most importantly, we need family to remind us of who God is when we forget. It was two years later when Alex and Darren had their child, Ezra. Darren's spoken about it, but Alex had severe postpartum depression. And Ezra um, contracted RSV at six weeks old. So that he was in the hospital at ICU fighting for his life. And is when I was rem reminded of what she sent me, and I sent it back to her, and I said, remember when you reminded us of God's voice in the midst of the storm? Praying for you. We are here for you. He is with you. I was able to do for her what she did for me. The world is starving for authentic human connection, for deep, authentic, meaningful relationships. We must realize, and this is big, we must realize that the only way to experience the full capacity for life and relationships is through a relationship with Jesus. Nothing else will satisfy. No amount of friendship will fill the hole that only Jesus is a solution for. But then what? Then we get to act. We see the church start acting this out. They're not just sitting idly by. This is when the kingdom expands how does this begin? This didn't happen before. This is, there's, a, there's a reason that it happened after they were filled with the Holy Spirit because it's not our own strength. There's something that unifies us. There's something that brings us together that we cannot see on our own, but that the Holy Spirit brings in us to connect one another in our differences. This is how God is reaching a broken and hurting world. This world needs to get this. This church needs to get this. He did not intend for us to end it with our own personal experience. This needs to be expressed in the church through us because that is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. On mission for Jesus, the hope of the world. There is no plan B. The church is not an event. It's not a program. It's not a nonprofit or an institution. It is family. We are marked by family. Family means getting through the BS and being authentic with one another. Family means meaningful relationships. Family means we are in it together whether we get it right or not, 
whether our expectations are met or not and whether we like it or not because we fight for it. Jesus didn't give us a choice. Everyone gets a place at the table. Family means you belong before you believe. Family is about embracing one another despite our differences and ugliness and sticking together. Family is about bringing back those dinner table moments. As you know, we, we, we do Alpha here, and um, we have these amazing moments around a meal, around a dinner table, where people get to be known. This is a space in people's lives that they are feeling connected, and they don't even realize that they're connecting with other individuals. And there's a craving for it. And Alpha is just one expression of that. We need to redeem those things back in our lives. We are missing these places, and we are missing them for other people. And so my hope and prayer as we, um, as, we, as we close, is that you would pursue four things, Garden Church. First and foremost, to show up. That the church is not done for you. It's not done to you. You are the church. So show up. Maybe it's signing up for a garden group. I think that would be a great first step. But we need to show up in each other's lives. This is not um, the job of, of, of the staff. There's, we have a limited staff here. The church is the, is the people. So we need to empower and equip other people to show up in each other's lives. You need to invite, number two, invite others along. 40% of you would identify yourselves as being lonely. 60% of you would identify yourselves as not being lonely. So there are so many people here that you can connect with. There are so many possibilities for relationship. So bring others along. Call out people in your lives. Would you, would you um, risk going to places and to people that you wouldn't necessarily find yourself relating with or relating to? And in those differences, find a common ground in Jesus. Number three, share stories. Share the good stories. Share the bad stories. Share the beautiful stories. Share the ugly stories. We need to take the masks off, and we need to share the stories of the realities of what we're facing. Number four, risk. Above all, risk. I think a lot of us come in relationships, and we think of family, and we think of past hurts, and we're saying, you know what? That screwed me over. I'm not doing that again. Would you risk being known again? Would you risk it again? Would you um, allow Jesus to part, partner with Jesus in risking to be a part of family, to pursue family, to redeem family in your lives? Because we need deep, authentic relationships. We need them times in suffering, and we need them times of celebrating. And um, as you know, uh, my wife, as I was saying, my wife and I are pregnant with our second daughter, and I don't think it's by any chance that we had um, her ultrasound visit uh, the 22-week ultrasound that we knew was coming. But we had so many emotions going into it. I don't think we realized how much we carried in it. Um, the questions, the what-ifs, the statistics of having a congenitally de- congenital defect and what that can mean for our second child is one of the reasons we didn't get pregnant for all this time. And so we um, sat there in the office with the ultrasound. It was like pins and needles. But before that, that morning, my wife and I sat together on the couch and my daughter was playing in the background and we just sat there and we prayed and there was such a contentment over us that despite the worst, despite whatever the news that we were going to get that day, that we knew a good and a beautiful God because we were reminded of a good and beautiful God because of family. And we knew that whatever was going to happen, that we would be okay to make it and that this girl, our girl, would be um, the most amazing thing that ever happened to us. And so we're sitting in the office and we're just waiting for the results. And the doctor comes in and um, we're just like on pins and needles. And we get to, 
I get to share with you what she told us. She said, perfect, perfect, perfect. Everything looks perfect. We get, to, we get to celebrate those joyous moments, but even if we had the worst news, we know a God that is good and beautiful because we have a family. We would have survived it. The early church survived much worse. And we have Jesus, and we can survive anything with him. And so family suffers together. Family rejoices together. Garden family, we have so much to be thankful for. I come back to it again. You are here. Air is filling your lungs, and there is so much possibility. So what can we do this morning to enter into family? Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org. Sweet.